I want to invite you to take out your Bible and turn back to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21 is our passage. Luke 12 and and verse 13. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we love you and we want all that we can get from you and from your word. Uh, Would you please feed us and nourish us and by the Spirit give us uh, Jesus Christ more and more. Uh, Show us his worth, his surpassing glory, uh, that everything else might just pale in comparison. Uh, We have a somewhat uncomfortable text before us. Would you give us the grace to understand it? Would you give us the grace to apply it uh, in each of our lives for your own glory and our own good? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This text comes in the midst of a set of Jesus' teachings on discipleship, uh, predominantly in light of his first and his second coming, which transforms all of our current priorities. That if he has come in his first advent and he will return a second time, that changes how we live in the now and substantially so even in massively personal areas like how we earn and spend and invest money, which Jesus is thoroughly unafraid to speak about in our passage today. This is one of the most surefire tests of what's going on in our hearts, is what we do with money. Now, we're part of a a culture where almost everything is measured by money, Uh, what neighborhood you can afford, size house you have, the car you drive, uh, what schools you can send the kids to, Uh, fancy dishes you eat, what vacations you can snap pictures of and post to whatever place you want to post that on, that somehow all of this is what makes life life and what makes it really worth living and striving for, and it begins pretty early. We have a, a preschool at our church, and at graduation, they ask all the preschoolers, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then they walk down the aisle with their caps and gowns, and some will say, I want to be president. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a garbage man, a teacher, a police officer. And most of the answers, if not all of them, have nothing to do with future potential earnings. And then you ask a high schooler, even sometimes as early as a junior higher, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. How much does so-and-so make? Oh, you want to make a lot? Yeah, why? So I can buy dot, dot, dot. Yes, someone in college or a recent graduate as well, and the pressure has mounted even more, and it seems to continue with each new stage of life. It is as if the more we live in this world and the more we exist in a culture where almost everything is measured in dollars, we are becoming more and more sanctified in a particular religion where a life can be measured by what you have and what you can get and own, and consume, and if it's a lot, then you really have life. And if it's not enough, however we define what that means, then you really do not have life. I think this is the predominant religion in the world today more than almost anything else, with its premise and its thesis really being that life is made up of possessions, that true security is measured by how much equity you have, and success defined by comfort and recreation and financial freedom and power and this religion's worship and love and its calls for fidelity is all towards getting a little bit more and more. And it's with this mindset of of worldliness that there can be birthed in each of our own hearts this desire for more and a longing for that which we do not have yet. 
This is called covetousness, this inordinate love for the things of the world, a preoccupation with stuff, which fuels then a discontentment that fills our heart with want that what we need most in this life is more. Now, in the previous uh, passage to ours, in the context, Jesus had issued a very strong warning against hypocrisy, which I don't think anyone uh, thinks that highly of. No one wants to grow up and become the greatest hypocrite of all time. But it's still a real danger. But it's in this passage that there's just a severe warning against that worldly culture which breeds that covetousness, which comes from a heart that really does believe to a great degree that you can really measure life by what you own, which is a mentality that is actually, unlike hypocrisy, often applauded, often called wisdom, admired, envied, even from those within the church. And Jesus is warning us against this very thing in our passage to be on guard against all covetousness. Would you look with me in verse 13? Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want you to notice first how all-consuming this covetousness and worldly greed can be, to the point where Jesus can be preaching right in front of your face, and you can't even really hear it. The desire for more of the world, the one of more stuff, daydreaming and planning for all of that can make us so dense to the word of God where preaching can just bounce right off of us. And this is what the context tells us. Jesus, the son of God himself, he just preached a powerful sermon. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, he gives a stern warning against hypocrisy. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't even let a little bit of that leaven come into your life. It's going to spread. Then he redefines fear for us, that we should fear no man, no woman, no earthly power at all. Why? Because all they can do is kill you, which seems like a lot. But God the Father can kill you and send you to hell, which is infinitely more. And so who should you fear most? And yet it is that this Father cares for you. With all of that power and might, he does that every single hair on your head has a number, and he knows it. Jesus also says within this same sermon, he pulls back the curtain a little bit so that we can look into the courts of heaven, that we, when we acknowledge Jesus on earth, he recognizes that in heaven. And if we deny him on earth, he denies us before the angels that our earthly lives really do have eternal implications beyond what we can see in this world and that our lives are ultimately measured by what we do with Jesus. That's how important he really is. And then Jesus concludes this sermon by speaking about the Holy Spirit to respect, revere, fear the third person of the Trinity in some ways more than him, and that this Spirit will come to your aid when you need him most and give to you a wisdom that you cannot come up with on your own. I mean, this is a profound Trinitarian message to give strength, hope, comfort, boldness, and also it is at the same time this charge and this feeling of of the weight of, of the gravity of heaven and hell, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the importance of how we live out our faith on this earth in this momentary and passing life. And, and the entire time Jesus is preaching, there's this one guy in the crowd and all he's thinking about money. 
which is what we see in his immediate response to Jesus' very powerful sermon. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, after all of that, this is what he thinks his most pressing need really is. In light of all that Jesus has just said, because there is something about covetousness, about worldliness, about that desire for more and more than what I have right now that can be so all-consuming where Jesus himself can be preaching with all of his might and all of it just bounces right off of you. There's something very hardening about the love of money which deadens us to spiritual realities. Now, there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's just a medium. It's just paper, coins, and statements and whatnot. But of course, it represents a certain power. And it is that love of it, 1 Timothy 6.10, which can be the root of all kinds of evil, that it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This man, with Jesus right before him, has a wrong love within his heart. Now, now, it might be weird for us to picture this scene. You know, people don't jump out at church and say, deal, deal with his inheritance for me. Uh, and if you've ever witnessed a family being torn apart by this kind of dispute, you might understand the, the kind of desperation uh, he might have to get these things settled quickly, to fix whatever can be fixed, and just to move on from it. Uh, for many of you who have been in the church for a while, you know that relationships can be ruined, even lifelong ones as a result of these kinds of disputes. And so we should be at least a little sympathetic to this man if we've ever witnessed the kind of drama he's currently enduring. But it doesn't change the fact that when you hear about hypocrisy, judgment, the fear of man versus the fear of God, the courts of heaven, the enormity of who the Son of Man is, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't change the fact that all of what Jesus has been saying means literally and utterly nothing to me, because to me, there's only one thing that is ultimately important, one thing that he would define as his greatest and most pressing need, and that is that inheritance money that I'm not getting, but that I want. Covetousness rooted in worldliness where life is measured by how much you have, it's a very strong religion. It's a very powerful belief system. It's very demanding, and it can harden us and deaden us and kill us spiritually. And Jesus responds to it. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's not a friendly man. That's a short and curt man. Because this man's utter indifference to spiritual realities for the sake of some cash puts him at a very great distance from Jesus' very own heart. It's as if he says, I don't care about hypocrisy. I don't care about the Father who can send to heaven and hell. I don't give a rip right now about being confessed before the angels in heaven or the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The best use of you, Jesus, is for you to use all your authority to get me my payday. Now, this man might have a case. Maybe he is being wrong. Maybe his brother is shady. There's shady brothers out there. But that's not even the point. There's something within him that sees in Jesus nothing more than a rabbi who can persuade my sibling to give me my share. And that's not why Jesus has come. Warren Wearsby, this is, I read it in Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. He says, there are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems but not to change their hearts. There are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. You know, I wonder if that's any of us. God, can you fix this and give me that, but don't change what I want. Just give me what I want. 
But Jesus, he's, he's too kind to validate his desires. Uh, he's too kind to let him continue on in this belief system and enable him to continue to live like he is. He refuses him because he's more concerned with his spiritual condition and this hardness of his heart. And this is actually the most gracious thing that Jesus could do in this moment. You know, Jesus does not come to us to solve all our money problems. He comes to us first to be a savior from our sin and rescue us from its grip over our lives so that we might be able to worship the real thing and not false things. This man thinks he has a problem out here. Jesus takes him to the problem right here. And perhaps it is that many of us might have the same issue where we think it's this or that or this and that. But it's actually much deeper than that. It's actually about what we really and truly worship and what we think is actually going to make my life life. And if that thing is something other than God himself, then that needs to change. This needs to change and not all this stuff out here. Now, Jesus is not being indifferent to justice, nor is he negligent of right and wrong. No matter how temporal this world may be, what he's doing is really pressing in into people's ultimate priorities. And here it is to not acquire more and more things. And so with this person before him, all consumed with it, to the point where Jesus is preaching right in front of his face, and he can't even hear it, these eternal truths are bouncing right off of him. He takes the time now to dismantle this religion and this worldview so that his followers will not be fooled into being zealous for it. Look with me at verse 16 where we see uh, a shining example of a person who believes with his heart that life does consist of these things. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is the success story. This is really the dream for a person who believes that you can measure life like this. He has a lot, he has a brains, he has a growth potential measured, and he seems to have the future all calculated out. The character in this parable, he is a rich man. He owns land which produces a lot of crop, so much so that he doesn't have enough storage to hold it all. The amount of money is way more than he ever envisioned. Can you imagine? My wallet's too small to hold this cash. I need like five wallets with me. This is a bumper crop. This is unusually large. This is uncharacteristic return, which requires entirely a new set of plans to deal with this kind of wealth. And this man, he doesn't go out and buy a Ferrari right away, right? He doesn't try and squander it on loose and wasteful living. He's not trying to make it rain and get that instant gratification. He has much more foresight than that. He wants to invest and save and grow so that this will last quite a long time. And he's willing to take calculated risks. I'm going to tear down the old barns. That's risk. But I'm going to build newer and bigger and better ones. That takes boldness and planning and and permits. Maybe not. He is coming up with a sustainable model for his growing wealth in which he will reap the benefit of it for many years so that he won't have to stress anymore. He can be financially free and relax and eat and drink and he can be merry. I mean, most of us in this room... I think we'd want what this man has, right, in current terms. 
Again, there's nothing wrong with acquiring wealth. It's not a sin to have a bumper crop or to have a future-mindedness and a wisdom about stretching that money and not squandering it. The problem we see is when we do a deeper dive, and this is revealed in this man's private thoughts, and we're privy to his personal conversation that he's having with himself, there's actually a real godlessness to him, at the very least, a practical atheism that ignores, or at least does not consider God as significant at all. Again, it makes it dense to spiritual realities. And it comes out when we look at some of the details. Notice that the man does not produce anything. Jesus' words are very clear here. The land produces everything. The person in this parable is not actually the source of his wealth, whether he's willing to recognize that or not. That's true for every single one of us and our own wealth of varying sizes. We are not the source of it. We did not create it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asked there a rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer, nothing. We receive literally everything. This man does not have the power to make plants grow. He does not cause the sun to shine, nor the rains to come. It is all the Lord of the land who makes it productive. And it's the same with each of us. Even when we think critically, who gave us the minds to think like we do? When we're given this opportunity or that one, who set that up for us? Who caused us to be born in this country? None of us have anything which has not been given to us. But look at how he speaks of this bumper crop, which ignores that very fact. We see it in all the first-person language. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? I will do this. I, I, I will tear down my, my, my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I mean, he's taking all the credit and the ownership of everything even when he didn't produce it at all. There's no mention of God, no mention of providence, no prayer of thanksgiving, no recognition of anything higher than himself. He really does believe that all of this is self-produced, and therefore this is not a stewardship to be entrusted with. It is an ownership of mine to feel secure in. And we see that too as we look into his perceived purpose of wealth. Money is something you store and save and make bigger and all to what end? Look at what he says to his own soul. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods let up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. For the person who believes that what they have is mine and self-produced, not given, owned, not a stewardship from God to be entrusted with, The purpose of wealth, therefore, rises no higher than the big M.E. For we find no thought in this conversation with his own soul that this wealth should be used for anything greater than what is seen in the mirror, and therefore all plans are towards self-comfort, self-ease, higher standards of living, and consumption. But at least he is logically consistent. I mean, brothers and sisters... When you don't think you've received, and you think you really earned, and you created this wealth on your own, I mean, why say thank you to anybody? You're just getting what you deserve. You're just owning what's really yours. And therefore, why spend it on anything else but yourself, your family, your own interests, because this is really 
all you. And then this parable starts getting really close to home. If we find ourselves becoming envious of this man's life and others like him, or if we find that his plans are strangely looking a lot like our plans and the very same financial milestones that we want to hit. He has a lot of confidence in what he owns. He really does believe that life consists in the abundance of possessions, and therefore it's not surprising that he really believes that the years ahead are held in the palm of his hands. True security measured in equity, success defined by comfort and recreation, financial freedom, power, because if my barns are big, then I am really bulletproof. Now, again, let's be real. Who doesn't want this man's position, at least a little bit? You think Jesus is giving this parable only to those weirdos that struggle with covetousness? Or all the weirdos? Because this is, and this has been, the predominant belief system and religion that life consists and is defined by the abundance of possessions. There is a faith in wealth. There is a trust that we have in riches, which makes us feel like we don't really need anyone or anything else, which is why worship of God is not even a thought on this man's mind, and only worship here is that of mammon and that of self. And so this parable introduces the success story, the dream for a person who believes what the world believes, but a twist comes in the conclusion of the parable in verse 20, where the oft-ignored God, he finally speaks. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a very abrupt ending, which makes a very stern warning, not just for the men in the parable, but for everyone who really desires to live like him. Even if you do have a little bit more time to enjoy the things that this guy didn't get to enjoy, at the end of your life, your soul is still going to be taken away from you anyway. God takes this man's soul. It's required of him. He really didn't have security. He really didn't have power. His plans were presumptuous at best, and all of that wealth, he can't take a penny of it with him, and even if he could, where he is, it wouldn't help him anyway. And this is the tragic end of those who believe in the world's prevalent religion of the day. The sad irony in this parable It's not that this man neglected his soul in one way. I mean, he talks to his soul all the time. He counsels his soul. He speaks to his soul. He plans with his soul about the future. The very soul he consoled and encouraged is not prepared for judgment. It's not ready for life after death and is ill-equipped to stand before God. He preached to his own soul and therefore eternally destroyed his soul because he really believed with all his heart that this is what makes life, life. Now, this is a hard sermon. But it's not hard because Jesus is hard to understand. It's hard because Jesus is easy to understand. It's hard because we all believe, at least a little bit, that life is really measured by what you have. It's by design that the very first word out of God's mouth is, is fool. I, I don't think that term is chosen by accident. 
the only other time was the last sermon I chose for this retreat, Fool, back in chapter 11 and verse 40, when he addresses the religious hypocrites who are going to be responsible for his own death, washing the outside of the cup and not the inside. I think that term is meant to, to shock us. Again, a couple cold wire to the face because we're all prone to covetousness in kind of this sleepy way. We just inadvertently believe that without even knowing it, this inordinate desire for these things, which is why we have to take care and be on guard. I mean, it's as simple as scrolling through your feed. I want that. I want that too. You know, many of us uh, have to take blood tests regularly for our hearts, skin tests for cancerous marks. Uh, A simple thing we do to make sure we're not headed towards something destructive, we really have to do the same thing for our souls. We have to see where we're really at. How we think about money tells us exactly what's happening right here. It doesn't lie. Listen to Alexander McLaren. But covetousness, or the greedy clutching at more and more of earthly good, has its roots in us all. And unless there is the most assiduous weeding, it will overrun our whole nature. So Jesus puts great emphasis into the command, take heed and keep yourselves which implies that without much heed and diligent inspection of ourselves, there will be no guarding against the subtle entrance and swift growth of the vice. We may be enslaved by it and never suspect that we are. Covetousness has many shapes besides the grossest one of greed for money. You know, I wonder if you believe in those words that its roots are in us all, and without the most assiduous weeding, covetousness will overrun our whole nature. We can be enslaved in it and not even know it. If we find ourselves looking at wealth as personal ownership, this is mine, not a stewardship. This is what God has, instead of, uh, this is what God has given me to use for his glory, then we haven't been on guard. But we think this is actually ours and not his. We become richer, we got that raise, and the first thing we think is, man, I really did this. Now that God really gave it to me, we may be in danger of being fools ourselves if we earn more than we used to earn. I mean, back in the day, I used to think, if I only made that, I'm already past that. And the immediate goal, once I get this, I'm upgrading to this. I'm going to buy this now. And we keep doing that over and over, banking on that future stuff. And I can't wait to invest and spend and make this grow so that I can have more than I ever had before. Maybe we're not taking care against every form of covetousness. If our paradigms of spending, if I spend this amount on this, and that's nothing to blink at, but if I spend that same amount on the church, it sounds kind of crazy. This much on a missionary, that sounds insane. I think we let our guard slip. Jesus says very clearly of this dreadful lifestyle and its miserly end, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The contrast to selfish investing and spending and hoarding and taking security in possessions as if this world is ultimate, the contrast, the reverse, is being rich toward God. Now, that language is, is very interesting. The Bible, for the most part, speaks about God's riches in kindness towards us. The Bible is always talking about how God is rich to us. He pours his blessing upon us. Father of lights, giver of all good gifts. It doesn't 
as a main thrust, speak of our riches towards him. But Jesus says right here that we can be rich to him. You know, we just came out of the Christmas season, and one of my favorite parts of it is watching our kids trying to figure out what they're going to get for us. They don't have any money. They don't have a car to go to the store. They don't have bank accounts. They don't really have anything. They're little, they got Pokemon cards. That's it. They got a little bit of money in their pockets, uh, wallets. If they're going to get anything from us, we're going to be part of the process. You want to go to Target to get something for mommy? I'm going to drive you there. That's what you want to buy? I'm going to open my wallet and give it to you. And, and, and oftentimes, they'll try and secretly make something or draw something when we aren't looking. But at the end of the day, whatever they do get for us, it really is funded by us. But it still does mean the world to us, does it not? To see them give us what is already ours in the first place. God owns everything, brothers and sisters. He owns everything, and yet somehow the privilege is ours to be rich to him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Lord looking at you full in the face and thinking, this one, this one has been really rich to me, even though he's the one who gave you everything. I don't think there is anything else in this world that is worth robbing us of that reality. Do you? God is very rich toward all of us. Covetousness can so easily blind us from seeing that. Discontentment can rob us of that. That God is lavishly bountiful and good to each of us. It's greed that prevents us from recognizing it. And more than any material thing, Christ's first advent shows to us in the birth of his son, made totally like us in his humanity, born in a manger even, and yet totally unlike us in his sinlessness and deity. The Savior is born of a virgin, truly man, truly God, laid down where the animals stay that he might live the life we've never lived in pure holiness so that he might die the death that we deserve upon that cross, that he might receive the wrath of God against our unrighteousness, that somehow God gives the just for the unjust. He lives so that he might die and saves us so that we might live, and he rises from the grave to secure that so that the one who just believes might have life and life eternal and how does Jesus Christ define this life? Not like the man the parable. How does he define real life? John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's what makes life, life. That's what makes life, eternal life. And this is where our true security lies Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us all things? Romans 8, verse 31. Knowing him gives to us a healthy 
detachment from a desire of the world and therefore greed and all kinds of covetousness. And so what does it mean to be rich toward God? Uh, Jesus doesn't really explicitly define it here, except that it's the opposite of more and more stuff. Listen to John Piper. He says, here, Jesus calls us to replace thing-seeking with kingdom-seeking, replace thing-seeking with kingdom-seeking. In other words, if a person finds his income rising and rising, and instead of funneling that increase into kingdom ministry, he buys more and bigger things to increase his ease and security like this rich man, then God will call that person a fool and take away his soul. But if, brothers and sisters, we are more hungry for his kingdom and we spend towards that end, we'll never be called fools. Never, ever. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying don't ever go on vacation, don't ever buy a home and get a new car and have a hobby and whatnot and save for retirement. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I don't think he's saying don't work hard, don't study, don't try and get that raise, don't be fiscally wise because God provides even if you're lazy. I don't think that's what he's saying. I do think, however, that we, when we are very protective of our own greed and defensive over our lifestyle choices, I do think we often try and find a straw man to fight against that doesn't really exist. Well, is Jesus asking me to be financially stupid then? No, where does he say that? Well, you think I shouldn't work and study and just trust God? No, again, that's not what he's saying. We, we just do things like that because if we can find some weak opponent, some weak objection to dismantle, then we can continue to call our belief that sometimes life is about what you have. Then it is about knowing God and making him known. And if you're putting up that kind of defense, I think it is that we're going to do a lot of harm to our soul. Now, others of us here, we want a dollar amount. Give me a percentage. Just give me a line so that I just give to him what's his, and then I can go enjoy myself just in peace. Notice that Jesus is commanding against a desire. He's not drawing a line on an amount. Uh, the question always really is, what do we really want in this life? Or do we think this world has more to offer us than the next one? That's not what we just sung. And therefore, how invested are we in this one versus the next one? Colossians 3 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things which are above, not on things which are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What we have to do is continue to set our minds on things above. That's an action, not a casual, passive feeling. You have to set your mind. This is not works-based righteousness that if you give me this much, then you get to go to heaven. Oh, you just missed a mark. Now you go to hell. No, this is a test of what we really believe. And if we really believe what we're supposed to be believing. Again, Jesus is not condemning wealth. It's how we use that wealth and for what ends, and if our spending really does proclaim that knowing God is life and not owning more stuff, or if our lives proclaim instead that owning more stuff is really where it's at and knowing God is leftovers. 
And I think more and more we have to look and understand and know if we are living our lives as if this is it or if we're living our lives because Jesus Christ is really going to come back soon. If we hope in this world or if we believe in the next one, if we just love Christ's advent and don't even think about a second one. Now, the application of a text like this is going to look different for each person. You know, some of you here might own up multiple properties, multiple homes, and have a lot more zeros behind that first number in each of your accounts. Some, for whatever reason, God just gives this ability, this Midas touch, like eight out of 10 decisions come back tenfold. It's like every other decision is a bumper crop. I don't have that gift. But I think if you do and you just look backwards at your life that, wow, this thing has really increased. I think you really have to think pretty seriously about if your life preaches stuff more than it preaches Jesus. Do not squander a God-given, God-fueled opportunity to be tremendously rich to him and to his kingdom. Listen to 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That's the best foundation. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I know that there are many examples in this church family we're very generous. I'm sure you know who you are. The pastors know who you are. Ah, maybe not all of them. For those of us with less, I want you to notice that this sermon isn't given at a Fortune 500 event. It's actually given to people who don't even have all that much stuff. It's a bunch of fishermen who left their boats. What did you used to have a boat? What did you used to do? Fish. What do you do now? I don't have a boat and I don't fish. People who left careers to follow Jesus. It's not given to the Fortune 500, and it's to let them know that when life hits those bumps, more stuff's not the answer to these problems, because you can be filled with just as much covetousness even if you don't get what you want. Listen to 1 Timothy 6.6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You know, one thing that usually happens after texts like these is that we feel real guilty. I shouldn't have bought that TV on Black Friday or the surfboard, or I should have got the LE Toyota, not the XLE. I shouldn't have bought the auto drive feature on that Tesla. And then after a couple of hours of guilt, maybe a week, we go right back to old patterns. I don't think that that's what God wants us to walk away uh, with just some kind of penance of guilt. And this is why talking with family and church family and small groups is so important. Because I really do think, actually, and, and prayerfully, we can make real life change in our heart's patterns when it comes to desires and goals and milestones and whatnot. Talk to your spouse tonight, not tomorrow night. Pull out the budget on your phone. Let's plan to be more generous. Let's plan to be rich to God. 
not just in sentiment, but really, really do this. Maybe, for example, I'm going to drive this car for 10 years instead of five years. I'll make car payments for five years, and then the next five years, since I'm used to making those payments, I'm going to make those payments into something else. My car's still going to work for 10 years. That's a simple, intentional change that you can make to be rich towards God. Uh, Perhaps we resolve. uh, We stay in the condo, not the house. Not so that we can be cheap and save more so we can buy a bigger house later, but so that I can be rich towards God more. I think this is a good and necessary conversation that we need to have with ourselves, with our spouses, with our small groups, and whatnot. I'm going to tell you, if you don't talk about this now, you're not going to do it. If you don't plan for it now, it's just not going to happen. If you don't set your mind after a text like this in response, you're not going to do it later. You simply won't. You will just be preparing yourselves for this pattern of listening to the Word of God and not doing anything about it. We have to be intentional. We have to set our minds on things above. You know, when, when we come to any retreat, uh, when we think about the gospel, when we retreat from our regular lives, when we think about the word rich, it, We, we know how rich God has been to each of us in Christ's advent and just how sure Christ said when he gave the bread and the cup, I will drink this anew with you in the kingdom. I'm coming back. I'm going to drink this with you. We're going to feast with him. He's coming back for us. And that changes everything about how we live in the here and in the now. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, this is a difficult text again, not because Jesus is hard to understand, because it's easy to understand. And Lord, we just don't have perspective all the time. Ten years seems like a long time. Uh, We don't have that thousand-year perspective. We don't have that million-year perspective. Uh, Lord, I pray that you enlarge our trust for you. Uh, I pray that you help us, God, um, to be faithful with what we have. Help us to really have that life, real life, eternal life that changes absolutely everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.